Hey, welcome again to Door Creek Church. Glad that you've joined us from wherever you are. Uh, let, let's dig into the word today. So I want you to think about your response to a bad report. So let's say, you know, in your personal lives, uh, a report card that was, as I used to say, below sea level. I, I remember the kid who took his report card and found his dad's old report card that was below sea level as well. He said, Dad, here's my report card. And just before, you know, his dad was going to just kind of break out in some serious, you know, reaction. He says, and here's one of yours, thinking he had dealt with the problem. And he said to his son, the dad did, well, that's interesting. And I'm going to respond to you in the same way that my dad responded to me. Uh-oh. More seriously, how do you respond to, uh, you know, uh, a report coming from a medical test? You, do you panic? Do you get anxious? What about a home inspection that could sabotage the sale? How do you respond to bad reports? Maybe reports about you. Do you spin it? Do you get defensive? Do you pray? Do you downplay? Do you try to explain it? Like when there's a bad report that's about somebody else and you go, but that would never happen to me because. Now I want us to get more focused about bad reports because this is where the text is going in Nehemiah 1 and 2. How do you respond to a bad report about God's people, about a Christian, about the church, about the people of God. I've been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill that chronicles the sad spiral of a leader and the implications for a church in Seattle and beyond. And I've been noticing my own emotional responses to that. Bad reports like abuse in the church, bad reports like the decline of the church, the rise of people that have no religious affiliation. We call them the nons. Losing the younger generation. The COVID casualties, I call it. 25% of people have dropped out of attending church. That's according to Barna Research. Deep divisions over politics and race that supersede our unity in Christ. How do we respond to this growing biblical illiteracy? To materialism that is rampant. So that our generosity as the people of God actually isn't any different from societies, person to person. Our lack of distinction has made the church irrelevant for many people. How do we respond? Today we come to the story of Nehemiah receiving a bad report. How he responds and how he rallies people to do something about it. So my prayer is, Lord Jesus, build your church as we dig into your word with a desire to live your word all for your glory and the good of the people you've called us to serve. Grab your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're reading verses 1 through 3 as we catch up with the bad report. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel or the capital of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Hanani, his brother, not necessarily his brother by birth and family, but his brother, a Jewish brother, comes back with a report. It's always good to just kind of look at what's the name Hanani mean? Actually, it means the Lord has been gracious 
interesting because we're going to read about God's gracious hand a couple of times in these opening two chapters. So there's a background here. We're not seeing the ruins that happened in 586 BC under King Nebuchadnezzar when he besieged the city and then ransacked the city and tore it all down and burned it all up. No, very likely what we're talking about and seeing here is the desolation that happened just some years earlier that is recorded in Ezra chapter 4 when the enemies of God's people sent word to King Xerxes or Artaxerxes to say, look, these people are not only rebuilding the temple, but now they're rebuilding the walls and they've been a rebellious people over the years and you should note that and you should shut it all down. And the king said, that's exactly what we're going to do. And so they go and they say, hey, here's the new edict of the king. This job is now shut down. And they not only shut it down, but they tore it down using force. Chapter 4, verse 23 says to do so. And it's very likely Ezra's catching up with the new desolation that's taken place back in Jerusalem. So four words that capture the situation on the ground. Distress. The people of God are in distress. Great trouble. Disgrace. They're in disgrace or shame. There's brokenness, broken walls, and there's burnt gates. They were a dejected, disgraced, defenseless lot. Nehemiah's response is seen clearly in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It reminds us of Ezra's response of the report he heard back in Ezra chapter 9. So he mourned. What did he mourn about? We're going to find out. But what we understand is he's seeing the bigger picture because his worldview is theologically freighted. He's thinking about what's happening in the world, relationship with God at the center, and here's what he knows. God's people, especially their hearts, haven't been centered on God, and the reason there's broken walls and there's burnt gates and rubble and ruin and desolation and disgrace, because these people's hearts aren't right with God. So he mourns. Could have ignored it, could have been angry, could have criticize them but he mourned and he stayed in that space not just for four days but over four months fasting for direction focusing his prayers seeking God's direction mourning and weeping over what over their sin look at verse 5 as we catch up with his prayer then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Speaking of the first five books of the Bible. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are are at the farthest horizon, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, 
Guess what? I'm going to gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering, honoring your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So we note his prayer. And in this prayer, we catch up with this acrostic that I learned way back as a kid. It's Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Acts. And we see these four movements in his prayer. He starts with adoration coupled with thanksgiving, right? He's praising and thanking God that he's great and awesome, that he's a faithful God who remembers his promise of love and faithfulness to those who follow him. Then he moves to confession. We acted wickedly, he includes himself, his family, his sins. We did not obey the commands that you gave us. And then there's the petition. Lord, hear our prayer. There's the petition, grant our requests. And all of this in verses 8 through 10, again, is praying back the scripture to God. So this is like, this is a good lesson on prayer. When you go, man, my prayer life is so shallow. My, my prayer life is, I, I just don't know what to pray for. I just start repeating these trite things and I want to grow my prayer life. Take a lesson from Nehemiah. He's praying back scripture to God. Verse 8, he's praying back chapter 28, verse 64 of Deuteronomy. Verse 9, chapter 30, verses 1 and 4. Verse 10, chapter 9, verse 29 of Deuteronomy. He's praying back, asking God to be faithful to his word, asking God to grant him success and favor as he brings his plan to the man who could make it happen, the king, the king of Persia. So we note his character, Nehemiah's character, and what it did. It's not a, an insignificant thing. It's not a throwaway line at the end of chapter 1 when he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. No, it's another way of saying, Nehemiah was the king's most trusted servant the persian king's most trusted servant think about it a deported jewish refugee named nehemiah whose name means god's comfort now the role of a cupbearer in antiquity was established it was more than a butler as you might think no historically it was an officer of high rank in the kingdom his duty was to pour and serve the drinks at the royal table. And because of this ongoing constant fear of rebellion, of sedition, of plots and intrigues such as poisoning, a person who was the cupbearer had to be thoroughly trustworthy to hold that position. And so we can only imagine all the places he faithfully served throughout the kingdom before he took this position. And we note this, the power of trust flows from a life of integrity you want more trust in your spouse integrity you want more trust from mom and dad a life of integrity you want more trust in the workplace pay attention to your character here's what we note from his character there was compassion 
He wept over the people. There was humility. He confessed his sin. He wasn't too proud to figure it out on his own. He fasted, he prayed, he sought the Lord. He asked for help. There was patience. He reflected and he prayed before he acted. There was servanthood. He identified as a servant even as he carried out the duties of a servant. He was God's servant, he said. There was focus. He was very clear that he delighted in honoring God. That was his goal in life, to honor God in everything he said and did. There was wisdom and courage as well. And so the bad report prayed over brings good news. Chapter 2, we pick up the story. It's four months later. Nehemiah is fulfilling his duty as cupbearers, and he shows up one day, and his countenance is sad. It's a hangdog day. And the king is perceptive of enough because he's observed this guy over time to know this isn't a, an illness thing. He's not sick physically. He's sick at his heart level. And so he asks him the question, why are you sad? And at that point, when the question is asked, he's entering into this space where the stakes are high and he says, man, my heart was troubled. My heart was racing because depending on how he responds here is going to be a make or break deal. And so he says, King, live forever. Why wouldn't I be sad? Because the land of my ancestors lies in ruins. The walls have been torn down. The gates have been burned by fire. And amazingly, the king responds by not saying, well, that's too bad. He says, what is it you want? And when the king or a person in power and authority asks you what you want, it is wise to be prepared with a good answer. And he was prepared, having fasted and prayed and God laying this plan on his heart. He's ready. But before he speaks... He prays to God. Look at verse 4, the second half of chapter 2. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Like, God help me to get this right. God help me to have the king's favor. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He had, he had the king's favor. He had God's plan on his heart so that when the king asked, when, how long is it going to take? When are you coming back? He knew. He had an answer. And the surprising thing here is he wasn't just settling there with saying, thank you, and now he's going to figure it out for himself. No, he'd been working the plan with God's help. And so he follows up and says, verse 7, actually, you could also help me as I go back and travel through these different provinces here to give me official papers signed by you that gives me permission to travel through these jurisdictions safely so I can make safe passage to Jerusalem. Yeah, you can get those letters. And by the way, 
There's a lot of supplies that are going to be needed back in Jerusalem. And can you give me a letter so I can take it to Asaph, who's the head of the king's park, meaning the king's forest, so I can get the necessary supplies and timber to not only rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates, but also build myself a house. Permission granted. And the surprise of it all is that the king actually granted him his wish. Why do I say that? Because in chapter 4 of Ezra, and remember this is one scroll, one book that we've got divided into two. This is Ezra and Nehemiah's one. Back at the beginning of this book, of this scroll, in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, we remember it's the same king who gave the cease and desist order. So what changed his mind? Was it Nehemiah's character? Some scholars say, no, actually, there is this, like Herodotus, he's this famous Persian historian who was alive at this time, said there was this famous Persian custom of the king showing particular generosity at a certain feast in the year. And perhaps this is what's going on. But Nehemiah clears up the question when he says this in verse 8. It was all God. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. And so he not only left with the letters, he not only left with the supplies, but we read that he left with a military escort, army officers and cavalry. And yet even though he had the king's blessing, even though God's gracious hand was on him, even though God had put the plan in his heart, we should not be surprised that he faces opposition. Enter Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come, quote, to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So Horon and the Horonites are out of Moab and the Moabites, the Ammonites where Tobias from. These are the perennial enemies of God, who when God brought his people out of Egypt would not give them safe passage. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah verses 1 and 2 speak to that moment in history. And so it's good to just remember this. You can have God's gracious hand on you. He could place his plan on your heart and grant you the favor of people in authority and that does not mean you won't face trouble and opposition and yet despite the trouble and opposition nehemiah makes it to jerusalem where he rested for a couple of days verse 11 and then takes his midnight ride on horseback with just a couple of others, because as he put it, he hadn't told anyone yet what God had put in his heart to do for Jerusalem. And so he's gone most of the night, because when the sun rose, verse 16, the leaders were looking for him everywhere, and he was nowhere to be found. But when he shows up, verse 17, he says this to the leaders. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Now he's heard the report and he's seen it with his own eyes. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. 
So they began this good work. Nehemiah's was a needed perspective because here's the trouble with living in rubble is you get used to it. The broken down walls, the burned gates of our lives, of our cities, of our churches, we get used to it so we don't even see it. Like, like some of us, we, we grew up in the rubble. Like that was, our, that was our bedroom. And you know, it was fine. It didn't actually bother us. We liked it. In fact, we actually knew where everything was, even though nobody could believe us. But then there was that day where mom said, that's it. You got to clean up your room. Or for some of the guys, uh, maybe now or maybe in days past, you lived the quintessential bachelor lifestyle where you were living in rubble. I mean, the kitchen sink was a disaster. Things were growing in it that shouldn't have been growing in it. The bathroom was a disaster. Your bedroom, in fact, every space of your place was rubble, but it didn't bother you. You got used to it. <laughs> the only time it bothered you when you realized someone's going to come over. Well, someone came over. Someone came over. Nehemiah showed up and he gave him a needed perspective that we are in trouble. We are in disgrace. And the interesting thing he didn't say in relationship to the broken down walls and gates is we're in danger. We're in trouble that you know what? We're vulnerable to enemy attack. Super interesting that he goes to this disgrace concept here. His was a needed vision and his was a welcome invitation. What a great leader galvanizing the people. Let us build the walls and rid ourselves of our shame. Now, you guys need to rebuild. You, you've, let, you've lived with this too long. You guys, and I, I don't supervise. No, he says, let us do it. I'm in on this. I'm rolling up my sleeve, getting my tool belt on. Let's do the work, the good work. And the motivation was him recounting how God's hand was on him all through his life. I would have loved to hear that story of how he talked about his rise within the kingdom so he became the cupbearer. And that day that the king asked him, what's wrong? And he asked him, what do you want? And he gave him permission. And he gave him the letters. And he gave him the supplies. And he gave him the military escort so that the people could all understand this is not only God's plan, but God's in this plan. And we need to join the plan. And so they start rebuilding. They start the good work. And not surprisingly, Sanballat and Tobiah resurface, mocking and ridiculing God's people, accusing them of rebelling. And I love Nehemiah's response, verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. Why was he so sure? Because God's plan was in his heart. God's hand was over his life, his gracious hand, so that he had favor in the eyes of the king and he was confident that the plan God set him to carry out would succeed. So let's bring it home by remembering this. It's a disgrace to live in the rubble and not do anything about it. Whether it's the rubble of our lives, the rubble of the church, the rubble of our cities. 
And I want, to reply, I want to apply this text in those three areas. Our personal life. First, I want us to reflect on broken walls, burned gates in our own lives. Are there character issues that relate to the broken walls? Relationships, broken walls that bring disgrace. What does it look like to rebuild? Are you aware? Are you open to learning about that? What is there in my life that is broken and burnt that I need to mourn over? That I need to fast and pray over? Have you found the mercy of God? Because some of us are actually in this space where we go, I deserve the disgrace because of what I've done. I deserve the shame because of what I've done in the past. That's not the good news. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, as John the Baptist, the forerunner, his cousin called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus took on our sin on the cross. So as we place our faith on him, we can be forgiven, our guilt can be removed, and we can live free before God and others. What do you need to rebuild that God's placed in your life to protect you? The word prayer, community, walking in the Spirit. All these things are part of God's gracious hand to keep us strong and to protect us. What needs rebuilding in your life? What gates are burned? These access points where people can come into your life and you into their life. Is there an unforgiving spirit that's a burned gate? Is there busyness that's a burned gate? Is there fear a burned gate? Severe insecurity a burned gate that needs to be rebuilt? Let's talk about the church. Isn't it beautiful that, Jesus, that Nehemiah's enemy said that this is a man who sought the welfare of God's people, their prosperity, their happiness. Is that what we're known for? Is that what I'm known for? That I seek the welfare, the prosperity of God's people. I'm wondering if we're willing to hear a report on the brokenness of our church, of our churches, of Christians here in America. Are we humble enough like Nehemiah to actually identify and mourn over that? Will we lock arms to rebuild the walls and gates? And I just think about things that show the brokenness of the church today. A lot of this is in our church, guys, in our hearts, in my heart. There's this hero worship that keeps going on, this celebrity craziness where we're more excited about certain individuals, men and women who teach God's word than we are Jesus. Leaders who'd rather be a hero than a servant. Would we mourn and confess the abuse that's so often covered up, whether it's sexual or any other kind of abuse? Would we mourn and confess the loss of holiness, of our saltiness in light, our irrelevance to our own children, to materialism and lack of generosity, 
to the deep divisions and the failure of unity around Christ, to our failure to do justice, to care about it, to do mercy, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, our lack of compassion. Let's rebuild. God's hand is on those who seek the welfare of his people, of the church. And he will grant success even though there's opposition. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. I'll build my church. And then I want us to think about our city. There's this interesting juxtaposition about disgrace and the broken walls and the burned gates. Why does he keep talking about that? And I think the reason why is a church or the people of God, they are disgraced when we don't care about the broken walls and the burnt gates of our city. The reason they were in trouble, the reason they were in great disgrace is because they got comfortable stepping through the rubble as they made their way to worship. They completely ignored all that was in front of them. They lived out in the villages, most of them. But they walked through the rubble, but it wasn't their trouble. It wasn't their problem. I just need to get to the house of God and I'm back to the village. Now, here's some encouragement. For a long time now, our commitment has been as a Christ-centered church for all people to be connected and committed to serving in community that it's not enough for us to say our doors and hearts are open to you and here we are up into forest and here we are on the north side and here we are on the east side of madison just come to us know that we would go and make a difference in the city in fact this has been a guiding verse for us jeremiah 29 7 spoken by god to the prophet jeremiah to the people who were living in none other than babylon before they returned to Jerusalem so the very city that Nehemiah came from all right and it says this also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile that is to Babylon not for Jerusalem the city of God Mount Zion pray to the Lord for it for Babylon and the people of ba Babylon because if it prospers if the people prosper then you too people of God will prosper and so that's why over the years and today we have seven partner schools where we've been mentoring and supplying food for their pantries growing food in our food pantry garden we've been supplying backpacks and supplies at the beginning of the year helping set up schools celebration parties at the end of the year work days and plenty more that's why we started a resale store on the north side called boomerangs that's why we launched a new campus on the north side, building a community that would serve the vibrant, diverse, beautiful north side campus community. Out of that, a refugee response initiative has started this year in response to God opening doors to new refugees who've come from West Africa to be part of that church. We've partnered with the East Precinct of Madison Police, regularly opening up our facilities as they trained and interviewed prospective candidates we've partnered with river food pantry with salvation army with care net pregnancy services we've partnered with fountain of life and nehemiah center for urban leadership development and we'll continue to do that but friends the report is in our city and our community 
is filled with the rubble of broken walls and burn gates. The things that were meant to protect our people are in tatters, the gates of access and opportunity in shambles. And we are called to seek the shalom, the well-being, the welfare, not only of his people, but of this city. And so there are broken walls and housing and homelessness. There are burned gates when it comes to unemployment opportunities. There's burned walls of health disparities. There's burned gates of academic achievement, an area that we've spent a lot of time on. There's broken walls within race relations in our city. There's broken walls within our judicial system. When Chief Koval could tell me, retired now, Chief Koval could tell me face to face, our judicial system is broken, Mark. We got broken walls. For example, Wisconsin again has the highest rate of African-American incarceration of any state in the union, and that's 10 years running now. Nationally, one out of every 81 black people are imprisoned. In our state, it's one out of 36. Our state has a representation of blacks that is 6%, and yet our prison is made up of 42% of African-Americans. It's broken. Gates are burned down, and God is calling us to reset our lives our church, our city. And when God puts it on our hearts to do these things, His gracious hand will be on us and no matter the opposition from within or without, He will grant us success. So what are you going to do with this report that God's Spirit is now bringing to your life of what needs to be rebuilt, of what God is bringing to your heart relative to the church and a Christian, an individual, or us together as a church? What are you going to do with this report that God is bringing relative to our city? Nehemiah sat in that space. He mourned. He wept. He prayed. He confessed. He planned. He set out courageously. He invited others to join him. And as we'll see in the weeks to follow, God used him mightily. Let's pray. Lord, we understand that we're not good at restoration. In fact, we can't do it. We can try, but your word reminds us unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so the walls that have been torn down, the gates that have been burned up we need your gracious hand on us to rebuild and so open us up to see what you want us to see in our lives in this church in our city move us lord help us to learn what we're seeing here in the scriptures give us courage give us motivation as we remember again that you are with those who desire to do just that. Until you come or take us home, help us be your people, building our lives, this church, in this city to know, honor, and serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.